0: Uh, If everybody else while we're waiting, if you want to get your Bibles open to Luke chapter 19, we're going to be considering that parable that Adrian read for us earlier. someone, don't we, who um, is good at talking the talk, but isn't very good at walking the walk. Perhaps it's the armchair sportsman that you know of, the football enthusiast who knows just how the footballers should get the ball in the back of the net, and yet who himself hasn't played a game of football in decades. Perhaps it's the calorie counter the person who can tell you all the grams of fat and all the calories that you're pumping into that, your body with that cream cake and yet who themselves can't seem to keep the weight off. Or perhaps it's the colleague at work. The person who's got lots to say about the way other people shirk their responsibilities and don't pull the weight and yet they're the one who seems to spend most time around the coffee machine. No matter what we might say we are Or what we might say that we're good at, everyone knows that the true test of a person is not what we say we are, not what we confess with our lips, it's what we do with our lives. It's how we act. It's our actions that are the real judge of us. And so what about the Christian? The person who knows all the right Bible verses, sings all the favourite hymns, Makes a good talk about their love for Jesus and their service in the church. And yet week by week, the actions of their life are no different to the actions of those people in the world around them. What does Jesus have to say to such a person? To such a Christian? Well, that's the question that we're going to consider this morning. But before we get straight to answering that, let's turn to have a look at Luke chapter 19, those verses that we read earlier. Today's story starts in verse eleven. Verse eleven gives us the, the setting for the the occasion for this parable. But first we've got to set the scene. Everything that's happening in chapter nineteen takes place in the context of, of the fact that Jesus is on a journey. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And in the previous chapter, before they sort of make the final stages of this journey, Jesus has gathered his disciples around him and has given them some rather shocking, rather incomprehensible news. Chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus has said, the Son of Man, remember the Son of Man is God's promised King, the King who would rule over the whole earth, the King who people from Every nation on earth would bow down in worship to him. This Son of Man is going to be handed over to the Roman army. He's going to be beaten up. He's going to be mocked and spat upon. And then he's going to be killed. Now, for the way the disciples think about the Son of Man and what they understand the Son of Man to be, this news that Jesus has given them, the Son of Man being rejected, killed, suffering... It it just does not compute. The two sides of the story will not mesh together. In their minds, the the Son of Man is full of power. He has great glory. Everybody bows down to him. And Jesus says, he's going to be killed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. The disciples, of course, didn't understand any of what Jesus was saying to them. Verse 18, verse 34. It was so far removed from their expectations that Jesus' message just went in one ear and straight out the other, barely touching the sides on its journey through. Now, if the disciples can't grasp this truth, the disciples who'd spent most time with Jesus, watching Jesus, who'd had other warnings beside this about what would happen to Jesus, if the disciples couldn't grasp this truth, then you can hardly expect the crowds to grasp this truth. On Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, there are crowds all about him. There are crowds there when he heals the blind man. There are crowds there watching when Zacchaeus goes to his house for dinner. And it's the crowds that Jesus addresses in chapter 19, verse 11. They've been following Jesus. They've worked out where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem. What's significant about Jerusalem? Ah, Jerusalem is the place where historically the king has had his palace. The king of God's people has lived there and ruled from there. Jerusalem is the city that the Psalms sing about and the prophets tell us about how people from every nation will will come streaming towards this city in order to pay homage to the king who sits on David's throne there. And these crowds, they hear Jesus talking about himself as the son of man. They notice that he's on his way to Jerusalem, this important city of God, and they put two and two together, and they deduce that the kingdom of God is about to appear at once. The new world order is coming. Jesus is leading the revolution. What they're expecting Jesus to do is bring about a total change in the way that not just Israel works, but the way the whole world works. They're hoping for Jesus to lead a revolution that will bring them political freedom. Perhaps some were even hopeful enough to suppose that Jesus would have the Roman Empire, the whole of the Roman Empire, in his hands. They're hoping that Jesus would lead the revolution which would, which would cause a change in the way the world works. They were expecting years of bountiful harvest, of economic prosperity and success. They were expecting crime and corruption and fear that goes with that to be driven out of their society. They were expecting a new civil order that would raise up the weak and humble the proud. They deduce that the kingdom of God is going to appear at once. And so Jesus gathers the crowd around him. And he says, I want to tell you a story. This is how the story starts. The nobleman who would be king went away. The nobleman who would be king went away. He went away on a very long journey. He went away to a distant country. Do you understand yet what he's telling them? This king, this nobleman who would be king went away for so long that his servants would actually have time to earn thousands of percentage return on a sum of money that he'd lent them. Jesus is telling the crowd he is the nobleman of this story. Jesus is the nobleman. Jesus is the king in this parable. And his kingship, his reign is not something that is about to happen imminently. First, he's going away. Is going away on a long journey for a significant amount of time and he will only appear as king at his return. The kingdom, as the crowds understand it, is not yet at hand. All those promises about the Son of Man, all those promises about nations bowing down to him, all those promises about economic prosperity... All those promises about a change in the way the world works. All those promises about crime and corruption being driven out of society. Those things are not yet about to happen. Not now. Not for a while. And so Jesus prepares the crowds. He prepares his followers. And he prepares them for serving him in a context where A. He is absent. But B where many others, where many other subjects, hate this king. Verse 14. When the nobleman goes away, verse 14, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. Jesus warns his followers that once Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, things are not suddenly going to get much, much better overnight. Jesus isn't leading the revolution that they are hoping to see. In fact, Jesus warns them, things might just get a lot more difficult. They aren't going to see that political freedom they hope for. They're not going to see the submission of the nations of the world. They're going to see people hate Jesus and people hinder his kingship. Now for a person who follows Jesus today, the warnings of Jesus still stand. Jesus is still away, waiting for his return when he will be made king. And so for a Christian, there is no promise in the gospel of economic success. There is no promise that if you become a Christian, your business will suddenly become more successful or prosperous. There is no promise in the gospel that if you begin following Jesus, your career will improve. There is no promise as a Christian that the bills will reduce and your bank account will swell if you follow Jesus. Those promises are not in the gospel. It's not what Jesus offers to people who are seeking him. There is no promise in the gospel of better health. There is no promise of trouble-free living. Poverty still strikes. Cancer still bites. Depression still swamps people. Trouble and death still prowl the earth looking for people to devour. And Christians are not exempt from those things. The promises of the gospel are not that those things would be removed from us. The promise of the gospel does not mean that the government or those in authority, or the media, or the culture around you, will support your religious freedoms. There is no promise that the people around you will follow the traditional values that you love to follow. So don't be surprised if the world that you live in is turning away from the king that you serve. There was never a promise that anyone else would follow him. In fact, the only promises given are that the world would hate him. Now, whether you are a Christian, or whether you're just coming to church to consider Christianity, to try and understand what it's all about, you need to keep this picture in mind. Following Jesus is not likely to make life simpler or easier in the short term. In fact, the most likely thing it'll do is make it harder. You will have to be more cautious, more tentative as you navigate life in a world where many hate the king that you serve. So with that warning in place for the crowds, how then ought the crowds to live? How then ought they to live in the absence while they wait for the return of Jesus? Well, the parable continues. Before the king goes away, he calls his servants to him. And he gives each of his servants a meaner. Uh, Thanks for Adrian pointing out earlier that a mina is its not a small amount of money, but it's also not an excessively large amount of money. It's typically about three months' wages for somebody who was an agricultural worker, a farmer in the first century. So let's today think about it as maybe five to ten thousand pounds, that sort of money. Not insignificant, but not totally life-changing. But really, it's not the value of the money that matters in the parable. It's the command that goes with it. Verse 13, the, the nobleman says to his servants, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. All well and good. You've got five to ten thousand pounds, how are you going to put it to work? How are you going to make it grow? Perhaps you could start a business of your own. Maybe a little cafe somewhere. Maybe you could hire some workers Perhaps to make some food for you or or to make some goods that you can then sell to other people. Perhaps you might invest that money in somebody else's business and expect a return on their profits. There's all sorts of ways you might gain an increase from this money that you've been gifted. Until you realise the problem. Until you realise the difficulty that these servants will face. You see, in the story, as we've already pointed out, verse 14, the rest of the king's subjects hate the king. The the economic climate in which these servants now live is a climate where people hate the king and everything to do with him. In fact, they hate him so much they're trying to hinder his return and prevent him from becoming king. So this money that you've now been given to invest and to use and to to put to work is now... Dirty money. Who's going to patronise a business where the profits go to this king that they hate? Who's going to tie themselves up in business or allow you to invest that money in their business when the profits are going to that king that they hate? And the issue for the servants is more than just, oh, it's going to be difficult to invest this money. The issue for the servants now becomes, if you are the one investing the king's money then you are known as a follower of the king. It's not just the king's money that becomes difficult to invest, it will then become your own money, your own reputation, the way people look at you. If the servants are going to go out and put this command into practice, if they're going to make this money grow, they're going to have to put their own reputation on their line. By their actions even if not by their words, by their actions, they're going to be announcing, I am a supporter of that absent king. I am a follower of the one who you hate. So when the king returns, he calls his servants to him to see how they've performed. What have they gained with the money? Well, the first servant comes, verse 16, and announces, his mina has earned ten more. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. A 1,000% increase, I make that, by my maths. That's a pretty neat return on an investment. And notice how the king responds to this servant. Verse 17, he says, Well done, my good servant. What makes him a good servant? Well, he's a good servant because you have been trustworthy. The king recognises that in order for this servant to succeed... He's had to put his own reputation on the line. In order for this servant to succeed, he has had to persevere through hostile and unfavourable circumstances. You've risked a lot in order to achieve this return on the investment. In a place where people hate the king and everything to do with him, you have been willing to stand with the king, to be known as one of his men even in his absence, even without the certainty of his return. And so the king says to the servant, to to the same extent as you were willing to be known as my man, I will now make you my representative in my kingdom. That's That's the reward that the king gives. You were willing to be known as my man, I will make you my representative. I will make you my ambassador. And so he puts him in charge over ten cities. The second servant comes and it's quite a similar story. Instead of earning ten, he's earned five and the king responds in a similar way. Well done for your faithfulness. And then the third servant comes. The third servant comes with a parcel and with an excuse. In his hands, he's got a little bundle of cloth all wrapped up, still dusty. It's not been touched for years, left in a cupboard. He's had to dig it out to get it, to bring it back to the king. And the servant comes to the king and and bows down low and he offers up this mina. Here it is, sir, just as you left it. I was afraid of you. I was afraid because I considered you a hard man. I was afraid that I might lose the money that you'd entrusted me with. I was afraid that I might not be worthy to serve you. I was afraid that I didn't want to end up in your debt. And so I've kept your money safe. I've kept it secret. I've kept it hidden. This third servant talks a good talk. He talks about Honouring the king. He talks about respecting the king, about looking up to the king, about taking seriously the king's commands and the responsibilities he has to the king. His talk is great, but his actions betray him. The king is no fool. Absolute rubbish, he says. Absolute rubbish. Your actions betray you and your own words will condemn you. If you really did think that I was a hard man who was expecting a return on the investment, who hates loss of money, then what you would have done is you would have put this money in a bank. You would have got some interest to give back to me. No, 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 the king says. You weren't afraid of me You were afraid of them. You've not put this money to work because you didn't want to risk your own reputation. You didn't want to risk losing your own interest with those who you work with. You were not willing to put your own reputation on the line. And perhaps the reason for that is because you were never one of my men in the first place. You were always one of them. As the crowd huddles round Jesus, hearing him tell this story for the first time, what does Jesus expect them to gather from this story? The one who is going to be king is first going away, and when he goes away, the overwhelming majority of the people who remain will hate the king. And they will do everything in their power to prevent that king from returning and to prevent that king from becoming king. They will oppose him. They will make it difficult for his people. And if at that time you were to listen to the voices of, in the world around you, then you could be forgiven for thinking that for all the world, this king is never going to come back. That he's done and dusted. That he's forgotten that his promises were empty and that his plans had been thwarted. But Jesus tells his story to show the king is going to return. And when he returns, what is it that he will look for? Who will he invite into the most important places in his kingdom? Who will he welcome to serve alongside him? The answer is, he will welcome those that have been faithful to him. Those that have been faithful to him in his absence. Those that have been faithful to him in his absence in an environment of hostility and persecution. Those are the people who this king will welcome into his kingdom. Perhaps as the crowd listen to Jesus telling this story, they look there at Jesus and they see by his side his two newest followers. They see the example of the blind man who persevered at shouting out for Jesus, calling Jesus' name, recognizing him as the son of David, even when the crowd around him were telling him to shut up, get to the back of the queue, nobody wants to listen to you, get away. He persevered, even when the crowd hated him. Perhaps they look at Jesus and see there by his side, Zacchaeus, the man who talks an impressive talk about the way he's been changed by Jesus. But who doesn't just talk the talk but also shows it in his actions. Zacchaeus gave away half of all he had to the poor as a result of meeting Jesus. And perhaps if the crowd could see the events of the next few weeks that would follow, they might ask themselves, will I be one who continues to follow Jesus even when he arrives in Jerusalem and the crowds are baying for his blood? Will I still be following him then? Or am I just following him while a crowd are here, while it's fun, while it's interesting, while it's fashionable? Would I be ready to risk my own reputation in order to serve this king? And even if I'm happy to call myself a follower, will my actions, will my life back up that confession? Or will I betray myself with my actions? Jesus is getting the crowds to think. Jesus is getting us to think. When Jesus returns, what will he make of you? What will Jesus make of you when he returns? Children, young people, you know, it's so easy to say the right things about Jesus when you're in an environment where other people love him. When you're at home and your parents are teaching you about Jesus, when they're reading the Bible with you, when they're helping you to pray, it's easy then to tell people that you love Jesus and you also serve him. But the real test of what makes a faithful follower of Jesus isn't what you say when you're at home with your parents. It isn't what you say when you're here in the Sunday school. It isn't what you say when you're at Friday clubs or on your summer camps or anything else. It's what you make of Jesus, what you say about Jesus when when you're out at school, when it might make you look silly, when you know that other people don't like Jesus, will you still follow him then? Will you still be known as one of Jesus' friends? Or will you try and save your reputation? Will you try and look cool in front of others and deny Jesus then? What Jesus is looking for is people who are faithful to him even when it's going to cost them. Similarly, students, you're in a a unique time uh, in in your life. And as students, I I recognise that that students on the campus do an awful lot in terms of speaking for Jesus and making him known to those who have not yet heard of him. But you also need to recognise that this time in your life is perhaps one of the easiest times that you have in order to be a witness in such a way. Just think about where there are other Christians in your life. You will live with them in your halls or in your houses. They're, They're sat next to you in the lecture halls together. They're part of your social circles. A lot of your time each week is spent with other Christians and you're able to support one another and encourage one another and spur one another on. It's not all that difficult as a student to continue as a Christian. But when you leave university when you leave college, when you leave the safety of having lots of other Christians your own age who can encourage you and spur you on, will you then still keep following Christ? When you're the only Christian in the workplace. Or when you might not see many other Christians, there are no other Christians in your social circles, in your sports clubs, in the groups that you're part of, for the rest of the week until you manage to catch up with others on a Sunday. It's no secret that approximately 70-80% to of those people who are following Christ at age 16 have deserted him by age 30. Will you keep following Jesus? Will you be faithful to him? What he's looking for when he returns is not what you once said when you were a child about him. What he's looking for is, are you faithful to him, even when the world hates him? And to all of us, we need to consider what will, what will we offer to Jesus when he returns? What will we hold out to him? Here's my life, just as it was when you found it. Just the same. Same old sins dragging me down. Same weak faith. Same incomplete knowledge. Same idols of my heart. I kept it just like this because I didn't want to risk anything. I didn't want to, I didn't want to risk, I didn't want to risk being counted a fool by those around me. So I didn't act. Jesus, I didn't want to risk giving away too much of my money. So I kept it for myself. Jesus, I didn't want to risk working too hard and, and, and suffering burnout. So I made sure I got lots of leisure. Lots of rest, lots of relaxation. I didn't want to risk not being relevant to the culture in which I live. I didn't want to risk for you. So I've done nothing. Here's my life, just as it was when you found me. A life that follows Jesus is not a life that is passive, it's not a life that just sits around waiting for Him to return to make everything new and right again. It's a life of service. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life that endures rejection and hatred by the world. It's a life that follows the same pattern that Jesus' own life followed when he came to rescue you. Will you be faithful to him? That's the challenge this morning. Will you be faithful to Jesus? Or are you trying to hedge your bets? Are you trying to keep a foot in both camps? Are you trying to follow the world as well as your saviour? Do the actions of your life, even in the secret places, when people from church aren't watching, when there's no other Christians going to find out how you act, do the actions of your life then show that you're faithful to Jesus or that you're trying to stay in with the world erect? around you. You know, it would be so easy to close the sermon there and finish for this morning. But if I did so, it would be unfaithful to the passage. Before we close, I want to draw your attention to the way that Jesus finishes this story. Have a look at verse 27. The king said, Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me when the king does return, he acts swiftly and decisively to eliminate any opposition to him. It's a necessary step in setting up his kingdom that has been promised. And as uncomfortable as it is to consider, Jesus, throughout his teaching, throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, does not hide the fact that when he returns there will be a judgment. And those who are considered enemies of his will be punished. Is that you? Are you opposed to the king and all that he stands for? Are you an enemy of his? Does the pattern of your life show that you're trying to prevent Jesus from being king? Are you trying to wrestle that crown from his head and have it on your own? The warning that Jesus gives us repeatedly is that he will return. On that day, will you be considered a faithful follower of his or will you be an enemy? The warning is stark. Now perhaps you don't consider yourself an enemy. Perhaps enemy, hatred, these words are too strong really to describe how you feel about Jesus. You're more curious. You're interested. There is a little bit of affinity that you have for Jesus, you don't mind him. You're willing to listen to his teaching. Where do you come in the story then? Well, aren't you just like the third servant? He didn't flatly outright deny the king, but he tried to live alongside the world. And the judge, the, the, the evidence of whether he was faithful or not, is not about what he said to the king. It's not about the way he could talk about the king or the things he liked about the king or the things he respected about the king. The evidence that was considered, it were the actions of his life. Were you or were you not faithful to him? Were you living for his glory or were you living for your own? And so if you're not sure, if you're not certain, if you're still on the fence, then this parable encourages you, in fact, urges you To remember, Jesus is one day returning. And the judgment on that day will not be based on what you say about him then. The judgment will be based on how you've been living for him today. Will you give your life to him? Will you become one of his people? Will you be one of his servants and receive the joy of being welcomed into his kingdom and enjoying all the blessings that that brings on the day that he returns?